The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the first ever museum show of Keith Haring's work in Los Angeles, Tate Britain rehangs its collection, and Joan Brown at the Carnegie Museum of Art. I talked to Sarah Lawyer, the curator of Keith Haring, Artists for Everybody at The Broad in Los Angeles. Alex Farkerson, the director of Tate Britain in London, has led the complete rehang of the museum's collection, including a vastly expanded presence of women and artists of colour across 500 years of British art. He tells us about the project. And this episode's Work of the Week is The Room Part One by the late San Francisco-born painter Joan Brown. It's part of a touring survey which opens this week at the Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh. And Liz Park, the Curator of the Pittsburgh Show tells me more about it. Don't forget you can subscribe to the art newspaper by visiting our website and clicking the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. You can choose from a digital, complete, or student subscription. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, which returns on the 31st of May. And do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, remarkably, the first ever museum exhibition in Los Angeles of Keith Haring's work opens at the Broad on Saturday. It features more than 120 objects, including archival materials, and reflects the inimitable language of characters, including the radiant baby, barking dog and flying saucer, that propelled Haring to fame in the art world and among a public far beyond it. The exhibition is curated by the Broad's curator and exhibition manager, Sarah Lawyer, and I spoke to her about the show. Sarah, this is the first Keith Haring Museum show in Los Angeles. Why? Why is it taking so long? You know, I think Keith's work is really resonant today and has been, of course, since the time that he made it. And I think there's a lot of cities where that's the case. There hasn't been a museum show. Well, it's been, you know, 40 years since he came to prominence. It's not been really that long. And in some ways, uh, many of the issues that he deals with in his art are still very relevant today. So I think it's going to be both surprising for our visitors and also really inspiring to see the work. Absolutely. I was sort of wondering if it was something to do with New York. You know, he's he's so associated with a particular scene in, in New York. But of course, the show is also called Art for Everybody. So this is the thing. He's somebody who communicates to people who aren't art lovers, who just love what he does. Right. So it's a curious thing, isn't it? There must be so many people in L.A. who are really ready for this moment. Yeah, absolutely. So we titled the show Art is for Everybody after a quote from Keith's journals that he wrote in 1970 just months after moving to New York. Um, So he was a young student at SVA, the School of Visual Arts, and he was 20 years old. And he arrived in New York to a fairly insular art world and was part of a generation that was pushing against that, uh, making work in alternative spaces. And really that statement, artists for everybody, became the guiding principle for him throughout his art practice. And so while he was coming to prominence and gaining fame and having shows in galleries and museums all over the world. He was simultaneously making chalk drawings in New York City's subway stations and also making public murals almost everywhere that he went all over the world and doing a lot of work with youth also, even regardless of how famous he got, he always made time to really connect on that community level. Yeah, his commitment to that statement is really palpable, isn't it? Because he loved Christo, for instance, because he obviously saw that Christo was cutting through to a broader public. Yeah, just actually months before he wrote that statement, Artists for Everybody in His Journals, he had gone to a lecture that Christo gave about running fence. And so he was really thinking about, you know, the way that that public art practice could reach a really wide and varied audience and an audience that was not only an audience that was going to galleries or museums and and seeking a particular kind of work. So it was really an egalitarian approach that he took to his practice. And then, you know, you can see that thread throughout in, of course, the public works, but then also something like the pop shop. He started the pop shop in 1986, just months after he stopped making the subway drawings. And he had stopped making the subway drawings because they were being stolen as 
as quickly as he was making them. So he saw that they weren't serving the purpose that he wanted them to serve anymore. They weren't reaching the masses. And so the pop shop, even though it's a commercial venture, wasn't really about making money as much as it was about using that platform as a way to reach the widest audience that he could. So spreading his imagery and sharing his imagery as widely as he could. And so in the show, I actually have the pop shop materials ephemera from the original pop shop paired with these capitalist pig paintings that he made. Um, So these works that use that cartoon stereotype of the capitalist pig to critique capitalism. Right. He was obviously clearly vexed by the whole art world exclusivity thing, wasn't he? Because obviously when he set up the pop shop, he was doing very well as a commercial artist. He was very much in demand. He was showing with Tony Shafrazi. He had a kind of presence in that community. But he, he obviously identified the sort of inequality of it really early on. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we also have to position it, I think, in the Reagan era. So there's this, you know, Reaganomics, trickle down economics that's happening. He's in New York City. He arrived in New York City in 1978. So the city was really in economic crisis at that time. And I think he's really thinking about that wealth disparity that's only grown even worse since then and pushing against that. And also there was a curious relationship he had with the critical fraternity and curators and so on. There's statements that he made where it seems like he was most concerned with his immediate artistic peers and this broader audience that we've talked about. Would that be fair? I think he really struggled with the sort of insider-outsider aspect. He both wanted to reach the masses and make work that was accessible to a public that was wider than just a specifically art with a capital A audience, but he also wanted to be accepted in the art world. And so I think that was something that was really challenging for him throughout his life. But yes, he had a lot of close friends of his that were artists and creatives working in lots of different mediums and genres. He was really close with George Kondo, for example, Kenny Scharf, and many others. And then he also collaborated with other creative people like Bill T. Jones, Grace Jones, and many others. I'd love to get your sense of what it was like in like Club 57, where he was a regular, he performed there, he obviously made works there, did shows there and so on. It must have been an extraordinary scene there at that time. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't there myself, so I can only speak to my research, of course. Of course. Um, but I've spoken a bit with Anne Magnuson, who contributed to our catalog, who was the manager of Club 57 at the time. And my understanding is that it was exactly like you're describing it, a really important creative space for a lot of artists working at that time. And, you know, it was in the basement of a Polish church. So uh, there's this very DIY aspect to it. And this sense of you can make anything happen in this kind of environment. It wasn't about any specific particular goals. It was only really about creative expression. So Keith performed there several times. He also organized many shows there of his peers. So I think that's also something that's important to note is early on, he was organizing a lot. He was doing a lot of curating, really, during those years that he was a student and and before he came to bigger fame. And even after he came to fame, he was always about bringing other artists up with him and creating these more collaborative environments to work and to have creative output. Tell me more about his lexicon of imagery, because he's quite sort of coy in some of his statements about it. He's like, I've no idea where this imagery came from in one statement I noticed. You know, there's this sort of certain reluctance to over explain it to a certain degree. Did he ever detail the kind of meanings and symbolism in any clear way? Or was he always encouraging a sort of ambiguity in his own work? So early on in his journals, he talks about really emphasizing the interpretation of the work by the viewer rather than the artist's intent. He never specifically quotes Roland Barthes, but I think we can see the influence of Death of the Author and that thinking that's happening at that moment that's becoming more commonplace in the art scene at that moment in the late 70s, early 80s um, about 
basically placing less emphasis on the author or artist's intent and biography and more on the context in which a work is seen and experienced by the viewers. And so I think he really believed in that. And we can see that in his writings and then in, in his work. He created these images, the radiant baby, the barking dog, all of these things. And I think it would be almost a little bit boring if they had a particular set meaning that the artist said the baby means I don't know purity yeah. or whatever whatever you wanted to you know assign to that he I think was more interested in this idea that these things could have changing and evolving meaning over time and in different contexts and he was really influenced by William Burroughs and Brian Geisen's cut-up technique he attended the Nova convention which was, I think it was also in 78, I think it was that November in the village and it was in honor of William Burroughs and many people participated in that. It really had a big influence on him and the early works as he's coming into his voice and you know, when he first arrived in New York, he was really mostly working in abstraction. It wasn't these figurative images that he became known for. And he pretty quickly moved away from painting as his main practice and was working more in experimental performance and making videos and also kind of exploring what it meant to be making work in public space. Um, so we can see the way that that sort of the cut up technique of Brian Geisen and, and William Burroughs affected that where he's actually taking specific letters and splicing them together and making new words. And then I think that goes on to the way that he eventually creates this visual lexicon that you're describing of right. these particular figures that repeat over and over in his practice. So it's not necessarily a literal collage, but it's kind of like a collage of imagery that he's creating, a kind of assemblage of different elements which he's bringing together in a certain way. Yeah, I'd almost describe it more like an alphabet. That's the way he's thinking about it, I think, is is that these are each a symbol that, you know, on its own doesn't necessarily have a meaning, but you can kind of rearrange and put them in different settings and they come to have meaning together as a whole. Great. I want to talk about the subway drawings because it seems to me they're almost like the purest form in which he worked. But the sheer scale of that endeavour is extraordinary. I read that he would do sometimes like 50 drawings in one session. That rate seems impossible to me. Yeah, he made thousands of them, thousands and thousands of them from 1980 to 1985. And he worked collaboratively with the photographer Sang Kwang Chi to document them. Um, so he would, you know, ride the train and stop at every stop, get off and make a new drawing or multiple drawings. And then at the end, when he got off the train, would get out at the payphone and call up Sang Kwang Chi and say, I rode the, you know, the A train from point B to X and and now you go and photograph them. And so that was also, I think, quite meaningful is, is that's really the way that he intended for them to live on was through this photographic archive. And my understanding is also that taking photographs in the subways at that time was illegal too. Um, so they were both working with this intense speed that was partly because the work was illicit and and unsanctioned. Herring himself was arrested multiple times for making works in public space without permission. So, I mean, of course, I think it's important to note that he didn't face the same threat of violence in that instance as many of his black and brown peers who were doing similar work. That's really important. But he was deeply politically committed, wasn't he? And this is something that runs right the way through. You mentioned Reagan earlier on, and his politics were pretty clear from the earliest of his works, weren't they? And for all the joy and, and the sort of exuberance of the work, there is a deep political commitment that runs right the way through. Absolutely. And the show includes works that kind of span the political topics that he covers from those economic aspects that we've already spoken about to racism and patriarchy and religion and sexuality and, of course, AIDS activism. And I think it is important to note that those things that he addresses really head on in his work and takes a, a position that is pushing against the conservative swing that the country was going through at the time. He also uses vibrant colors and brings so much joy and also humor to the work. Tell me more about his response to his AIDS diagnosis, because, of course, he had seen many people die before that 
it was in 1988 that he received the diagnosis. But it's extraordinary to me that he set up the foundation the following year, for instance. So there was a sort of clear awareness of how he could practically respond to this to this terrible tragedy. Yeah, I think so. There's his activism side of that and in which he, even before his own diagnosis, was very involved in AIDS activism, in the grassroots movements that were supporting communities that were affected and that were sharing information about how this illness spread when there was so much misinformation and a lack of real critical response from the government. Yeah, the politicians didn't want people to know this stuff, did they? American lawmakers were stopping information getting to the public, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with stigma. And of course, Keith was a out gay man. He came out just that same fall that he moved to New York when he was 20 years old. And as he rose to fame, he was making work that always incorporated his sexuality. And I think there's something really heroic and brave about that, especially at that time period when there was so much stigma. And then, of course, like you had mentioned, with with his diagnosis, he just a year later established and opened the Keith Haring Foundation, which was, of course, made to support his artistic legacy, but also was set up with the mandate to support AIDS-related causes as well as underserved youth. And the foundation continues today to really be a philanthropic venture that supports those organizations. Lastly, I wanted to ask about the kind of aims of the show, really, in a sense, because when an artist is as famous as Keith Haring, is the job of a show like this to kind of deepen the mystery in a way, to kind of take the great things that most of us know about this person and their work and somehow complicate it to a certain degree? Yeah, I think being the first show in Los Angeles, it was important to me that we showed the breadth of the work and show work from the entire span of his career, which is just over a decade. And to be honest, I have about 10,000 square feet in our galleries. I could have filled that space many times over with the (laughs) amount of work that he made in that short amount of time. He was prolific. He was constantly working and his output was of great quality. There's just an incredible wealth of work out there. So it was definitely a process of editing. But yeah, I think people who come to the exhibition who may only know his work either superficially or from commercial work, a lot of people will recognize his imagery because it's really saturated in popular culture. Mm, We'll be really surprised to see the breadth and depth of the practice and how it evolved over that decade plus from the earliest works that are these more abstract experimental images and even these like kind of spray paint works to works that are massive canvases and tarpaulins that have very complex scenes on them. And I think one thing that threads all the different materials that he used in the exhibition is his line. His line is really his medium. He was so masterful with that. He really never did any specific sort of drawings underneath on a canvas or even on the side of a building when he was doing large-scale murals. He just had this understanding of his own basically body and space and the scale of things in relation to that and was able to create these really intricate and complex designs just on the fly. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much. Keith Herring, Art is for Everybody, is at the Broad in Los Angeles from the 27th of May to the 8th of October. It travels to the Art Gallery of Ontario in Toronto from the 11th of November to the 17th of March next year. And then it's at the Walker Art Centre in Minneapolis from the 27th of April to the 8th of September next year. Coming up, take Britain's Rehang and Joan Brown in Pittsburgh. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. 
Jerry Chris Van Dyke, an artist who sold carvings in Seattle under the name Jerry Witten and claimed to be Native American, has been sentenced to 18 months of federal probation. Van Dyke, who is not enrolled in any recognised tribe or nation and has no Indigenous heritage, violated the Indian Arts and Crafts Act, a federal truth in marketing law administered by the Indian Arts and Crafts Board to safeguard the rights and livelihoods of Native American artists. He pleaded guilty in March to misrepresenting Native American produced goods and products. An 18th century Indian sword looted by British troops in 1799 fetched £14.1 million, including fees, at a Bonhams auction in London on Tuesday, a price Bonhams said is an auction record for an Islamic and Indian object. The one-metre-long sword belonged to Tipu Sultan, also known as the Tiger of Mysore. He was the Muslim ruler of a kingdom in southern India and waged several battles against the colonial East India Company. The weapon was taken from the palace at Serengapatam by troops of the East India Company, who had defeated Tipu Sultan's army and killed him. Art historians and other commentators have in the past questioned the validity of market activity relating to objects plundered from Tipu Sultan's palace. Hundreds of people helped clean and restore a sculpture of a black woman by the US artist Shabalala Self, which was vandalised on the 15th of May. The three-metre-high bronze work, entitled Seated, which has been temporarily installed outside the Delaware Pavilion in Bexhill-on-Sea on England's south coast, was defaced when the perpetrator covered the entirety of the woman's skin with white spray paint. Volunteers were invited to help remove the paint and bring the community together in an act of peaceful resistance. Shabalala Self said she was disheartened by the attack, yet not surprised because, she said, black female bodies are often targets for abuse. She added that the vandalism was a futile attempt to erase the woman's colour and her strength. Self-sculpture can be seen until the 29th of October. You can read these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. On June the 8th, Christie's New York presents rare and important designs of the 20th and 21st century in their biennial design sale. Highlights this season include a show-stopping Claude Lalande structure végétale chandelier, a Tiffany Studios rare fruit table lamp, Jean Royer's rarely seen 1950s sculpture suite and more. Visit the exhibition beginning June the 2nd at 20 Rockefeller Plaza and find out more at christie's.com. Welcome back. Now, Tate Britain this week opened a complete rehang of its collection, the first in a decade. The London Gallery houses the national collection of British art from the 16th century to now and has recently upped the speed and scope of its collecting of both women artists and artists of colour to the extent that some 70 works of the 800 in the new displays have been acquired in the past five years. It also comes after a period of intense debate in Britain about the legacies of colonialism and Britain's role in the international slave trade and about the nature and practice of history. The director of Tate Britain and mastermind of the new hang is Alex Farkerson, and I spoke to him about this huge endeavour and the concepts behind it. Alex, this might sound an obvious question, but why do a rehang at a major museum like yours? Well, firstly, it's been 10 years since the last rehang, which, you know, in the life of a museum is a long time. And we felt that any rehang, if you like, is an opportunity to present a major collection like this that we don't have the space to present in its entirety in a new light with both, if you like, the old favourites, but also newly acquired works and rediscoveries. And to set it out with perhaps a different vision too, which we sought to do in this case. Can you say something about what the previous vision was, if you like? Because obviously you inherited a previous director's plan for the museum Mm. and their curatorial teams, obviously. So what was there before you started on this task, if you like? So under Penelope Kurtz's leadership, her rehang, uh, the team's rehang of 2013, took a strictly neutral approach to chronology. So you walk from room to room. One room ends just literally at the moment, the next one's beginning. And then potentially any work from the collection can, you know, therefore be accommodated because there's no thematic or interpretive framing within the uh, era it belongs to. So it's a kind of interesting experiment to see what British art over time, what this collection, our collection, Tate's collection of British art that runs from the Tudors to now, how that can appear and be experienced with absolutely no thematic framing. 
That's essentially what we've inherited. We've actually stuck with chronology. Another thing that we've stuck with, if you like, but repurposed slightly, is that under Penelope's rehang, the majority of the rooms, of course, accommodate many artists altogether in a given period, but it was punctuated by rotating displays, as well as some fixed solo presentations, most of all to Turner, but also to Henry Moore, for example. I mean, I would say one of the benefits of the last rehang, and the rehang we've been working with the last few years, is that it offered maximum flexibility. I think our understanding really benefits from seeing art in time. We've, we've even kept the direction in which a chronology goes because the top left hand of the gallery, Northwest, has kind of quite historical you know, interior detailing, so heavy green marble that really only fits with the historic part of the collection. And gradually, as you circle around the kind of horseshoe shape towards the northeast quadrant, the galleries themselves become more and more modern until you get to very minimalist spaces. So it is a logical way. And we've also kept these solo displays, both because some are permanent and permanent commitments, but also the idea of rotating rooms. We've lessened a number of those rooms in order to accommodate more of the kind of thematic framing we're giving to the kind of group displays. But the other thing we've changed is that they're now more located in time, so you don't sort of jump around in the same way. So that remains, and as does roughly the same number of the old favourites, if you like, the most celebrated works, but they're presented in a new light, both by there being the inclusion of new and different artists, past and present, but you know, also, and I think most of all, in how we're thematically framing this rehang, which maybe we can talk more about. Let's talk about it now then. They're effectively principles. They're not themes as such, but they are principles that you've stuck to, three of them. Tell us about those. Yeah, so as you say, they're overall principles that curators have kind of worked with and within. And they're to relate art to society, Britain to the world and history to the present. And I think kind of fundamental to the theming of each room is, or, or the starting point is really to relate art to society. And by that, we mean its broader historical context that, of course, art is always part of. So this rehang, if you like, kind of resists the notion that art somehow is made and occurs in a vacuum. Yes, it is a sort of quite rarefied thing in many ways and a very very sophisticated kind of cultural production, if you like, that, of course, has its own visual rules, visual codes, but it also arises out of and reflects on the society, the culture, its own times. And so what the curators have done is with each room that they've led on, they've related groupings of significant works in the collection, be they, again, old familiars or new acquisitions, to a different aspect of the time. So you can actually sort of, in a way, view through art, you can kind of view what's going on, say, in the Georgian period from four different perspectives, quite different perspectives, in fact. I think there are two really interesting challenges in that that you're aware of from the beginning. And one is that, you know, art sometimes seems to have considerable distance from society. I guess an obvious example is when you get to the 20th century, you, of course, have abstract art, And abstraction is often seeking to, if you like, purge art of references to the outside world. And yet often it's actually also considers itself to be analogous to historical change. And I suppose the obvious example of that is something like constructivism, uh, which is a geometric form of abstraction, begins early 20th century and originates in Russia. And those artists saw their art however radically non-objective, you know, as a technical term would be, or non-representational, as actually analogous and part of a whole project to reshape the entirety of society. So that's a kind of direct analogy, but there are others to be made. You know, you think of abstraction St. Ives, it evokes nature. It doesn't depict or represent nature usually, but it, it evokes nature. It doesn't feel like a kind of abstraction made in urban conditions. So sorry, I'm going into the detail of abstraction there, but really only to make the point that there's some art, of course, that you can very directly see its relationship to historical change, others where there's distance. So that's one challenge. And then the second challenge, and I think this is particularly the case of historic art, 
which is actually more directly representational of various social issues, is often because of its economics, who it's made for. It's often commissioned, or a bit later on, who buys it. And, you know, of course, it's expensive. <laughs> in some cases, very expensive. Even in its day, it tends to represent the values for whom it's made. So, you know, its relationship to society might be quite direct, but it's obviously offering a very partial view of society and a view from above. So, you know, the challenge there is how do you make it more inclusive, more representative, more democratic? But, you know, in relating art society, we also, you know, as part of that, we wanted to think about, if you're thinking about Britain, and this being about British art and Britain in time, it's also about thinking of the internationalism of Britain. I mean, both in terms of who artists are, where they're from, what their identity is, of course, but also, you know, the fact that British history is taking place all over the globe quite rapidly, begins in a Tudor period where the collection begins. And, uh, you know, to try and reflect that, even when the art itself is perhaps not explicitly addressing it, but where, say, the sitters in a painting, you know, they say their wealth or power is derived from, well, specifically empire, but, you know, global trade. So, you know, how do you make that international dimension visible? Sometimes it's a subject matter in a work, often it isn't. And, and then thirdly, to relate the past to the present. So all these terms sort of interweave. And in thinking of themes for each room, I think the curators have done a great job in choosing themes that feel resonant now. So, for example, the first Georgian room is called Metropolis. And that's a deliberately kind of almost 20th century science fiction type, but reminds you of the Fritz Lang film, perhaps, in the 1920s. But we're talking about the early 18th century. And you're seeing paintings, of course, not just of cityscapes in London, but including cityscapes in London. And, you know, a lot of those buildings remain the same, as is the, the kind of urban culture that comes about at that time. And by calling it metropolis and using that term, you also imply a kind of context to the city that isn't entirely a sort of celebration of the city. It, there's, a, there's an implication, I think, perhaps because of the Fritz Lang reference, of, of a kind of underbelly of that city. And therefore that allows those kind of critical, if you like, aspects. And it seems to me that in every room, critical aspects thrive through the spaces, through the works and the way they're related to each other. And of course, through the texts. But that's vital, isn't it? That there's a critical aspect that's immediately available to everybody who visits these spaces. And you can investigate it to the depth that you choose, if you like. Yeah, that's right. You know, and I think I think that critical edge or that that partial critical edge, if you like, is all linked to this question of how, you know, once you've made the connections between art and society, what is absent? And of course, Huge things are absent because historical art, in particular, tends to have a social vantage point from above. So if this is a ship, you're getting the view of life on board from the captain's perspective. You're not getting a below-decks perspective, to use a metaphor. Mm, yeah. So how do you also sort of give glimpses to, you know, the kind of lives that most people lived? And how some art, it's acting as a form of promotion of individuals, sometimes even propaganda, in a very subtle and quiet way. You know, I don't mean, you know, in the same way as propaganda with capital P. So, and in those cases, you need to, in a way, read the work a bit against its own grain. Do you know what I mean? So this is explicitly what it's saying, but actually this is the subtext, and this is what's going on, and this is the context, and this is why it's kind of deliberately idealising something, you know, in order to promote something. And these, I think, are contexts we would bring to it today. And you know, but it's not about imposing modern values on history. It's actually trying to recover history in a more truthful way. Exactly. And it taps into that whole debate, doesn't it? There's a very live debate in Britain and across the world at the moment about history and about yeah. history as a moving thing versus a static thing, which some people want it to be. As in, there are many people out there who don't want us to explore slavery in relation to right. the great buildings and, in this case, the great artworks that are in our public collections or in our public lives. But this very explicitly does do that. You're going there. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's an important gesture. Tell me more about that. I mean, I guess so many people's school history, if that was the extent they studied history, you know, is a sort of history of kings and queens, right? Actually, we have very few kings and queens because that's largely the domain of the National Portrait Gallery's collection, although we do have Queen Anne, for example, in our second gallery. 
yes, there's that. And that's obviously the view from above. The first two centuries is largely portraits. It's largely of courtiers. You know, the royal court is a centre of power. You know, but what happens if you also try and see British history from below, from, from a side? How do you begin to show the experience of, let's say, ordinary people with more reality and not just as a sort of pictorial device on the sort of edge of a landscape painting? So how do you do that? How do you surface the colonial context, including the context of slavery, for example, which drives the economy in such a major way in the 18th and early 19th century? Undeniably, you know, that's historically true. Yeah. You know, it's also a historical fact that, you know, some of the sitters of great paintings we have in the collection were plantation owners and therefore, you know, owned typically large numbers of enslaved people. So, you know, that's not maybe historically how we've talked about or museums have talked about or identified works in their collection. But identifying who a sitter is is pretty fundamental, you know, to any interpretation. And it shouldn't stop at the way they want to present themselves, which would be glamorously often or as models of cultivation, you know, of gentility, of politeness. You know, I'm particularly thinking of a, a, a one room in the rehang where there's a kind of disconnect in a way between how some of the sitters in paintings who could afford to have themselves painted by Gainsborough and afford to be dressed the way they're dressed in a very fashionable way, how, you know, the kind of image they're modelling and, you know, what is underpinning it, what is enabling it. Exactly. And it seems to me that it doesn't detract at all from what Gainsborough has done and the greatness of any of his paintings to know that, for instance, the Bailey family have plantations in Grenada and British Guiana. It seems to me that that only deepens your chance to understand those paintings. And I guess that's one of the principles. But of course, the other technique that you're using, if you like, Mm. to kind of explode these pictures, as well as draw more from them is by what you call stealthy interaction by contemporary artists. Yes. Can you say more about that? Yeah, sure. So you can go some way in terms of how you read paintings. You can, and we're talking mainly about the historic half of the displays here. You can go some way in which paintings you choose and how you juxtapose them. And you can go some way in terms of the theming of the room. But, you know, I think often it's the introduction of contemporary works that really kind of follow through on some of what we're talking about. And offer a direct voice from the other side of the coin, you know, essentially, a kind of rejoinder. And, you know, they do so somewhat stealthily, and I hope, well, from the corner of one's eye, let's say, right, <laughs> that they could almost look like they belong, but, you know, very quickly you realise they don't. So, you know, often the artworks are kind of mimicking the visual language of the time and making direct reference to that moment but you quickly see that they belong to the present. I sort of see them also as our sort of fellow time travellers back in the past. And, you know, you could say they're in a way a bit on our side too yeah. in terms of how, you know, we would... I think most people would want these historical truths to be surfaced and also a bit of comeback. They can sometimes act for the lost voices of, you know, those on the other side of an aspect of, I don't know, economic... And political oppression, for example. Yeah. You know, they help give voice to the absent. And I think often in a slightly satirical and playful way. But also sometimes in, I think, a really effectively brutal way. You know, Mm. I think about Sonia Barrett's chair number 35, which is this broken historic chair which is in the middle of one of the rooms where the economic benefits of slavery to Britain are apparent in the works around the walls and that's an extraordinary gesture and I don't think at all detracts from the images around us but just reminds us of the sources of some of that wealth. Well absolutely because in that room what it's it's showing uh, London as the biggest city in the world and uh, you know benefiting from you know the extraordinary wealth that's being derived by a fast-expanding empire. And although you don't see depictions of, you know, colonies, what you do see is so-called conversation pieces, group portraits that are, you know, modelling values of sociability, you know, amongst upper classes in domestic environments. And you've only to look at what's on the table and what's being consumed, what's being drunk as part of rituals of sociability, so tea, coffee sugar with coffee, and furniture, mahogany furniture. Mahogany came from Honduras and was produced by enslaved workers 
in uh, British Honduras, you know, or Chinese export, porcelain. Those objects actually map these global networks. So you might be in one room, and you may be in one city, London, but through that material culture that then Sonia plays with and inverts, you've kind of potentially got a mapping of a global London in the early 18th century. I wanted to talk also about the contemporary spaces mm. because one of the things that's interesting about those spaces is that in a way you've got an established narrative and a much deeper and broader narrative working together. So, for instance, in the 1980s room, there are artists who have long been associated with that period and displayed very often in the Tate's rooms, such as Tony Cragg and Anthony Gormley. But then you've got alongside them members of the black arts movement who have been acknowledged by the Tate in the past, but perhaps not as deeply as they should have been and are now absolutely at the heart of the narrative as opposed to perhaps on its fringes where they had been kept for quite a while up until recent years. Yeah, no, together and equal billing, I would say. Yeah. I think the achievements of the Black Heart movement have just become more and more recognised in the last five, ten years, and rightly so, and I think influence a very new generation of artists of colour who've emerged in this country of late. So, you know, I think it's exciting to see their work recovered, together with other kinds of practices, a kind of beginnings of a post-feminist practice, someone like Linda. Yeah. For example, the amazing kind of analytical, political, half-abstract paintings by Rita Donner of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, for example. Yeah. So Britain at a time of Thatcher, I mean, in a way, it's such an obvious thing to relate the 80s to the Thatcher government. It, in a way, unites so many issues and conflicts, doesn't it? Yeah. If you think of, you know, the experience of LGBT people, especially gay men, you know, at the height of AIDS and Claude's 28, the Troubles I've mentioned, you know, the black uprisings in major cities in Britain, And, you know, in terms of the sculptors, who have been better known historically, I think some of those tensions are evident in the work, but in a more removed sense, while, you know, they're perhaps more direct in works by, say, Donald Rodney. And uh, for me, it's exciting to see those artists together, I have to say. You know, there's a real sense of materiality to the work and politics and, you know, multiple, I guess, contestations, really. It's also so foundational for... Actually, our own times, isn't it? You see the beginning of the decline of heavy industry there, of course. Well, or certainly the acceleration of it. You see, you know, the ending of the post-war political consensus, for example. You know, the, the beginnings of what, you know, people call a bit theoretically the neoliberal economy, which we're probably still in, you know, in a form of globalization we recognize today. So it feels really foundational. And then lastly, I wanted to ask you about new acquisitions, but also looking deeper into the collection and finding things which are already there, but perhaps haven't been displayed for a long time. There was a lot that surprised me. I know this collection very well. And yet there was a hell of a lot that surprised me as I was going around the displays. And that's partly because I think is it 70 of the 800 works are acquisitions from within the last five years. Right. But also, you, it seems like you've tasked the curators with really delving much more deeply and widely into the collection and finding new things for us to contemplate. Well, I mean, I have to say all credit to them. They, they didn't even need tasking in that, <laughs> that respect. I mean, their love and passion for the collection is such that, you know, they've all done that work with respect to the periods they've led on and typically curators have led on, you know, three, four, in some cases, you know, five or six rooms, either alone or together, sometimes passing on the baton, you know. So, you know, I think that just reflects their knowledge. And those curators, those colleagues who've been with us for a few years have been also involved in these acquisitions and those acquisitions were made you know often it's a bit different with the contemporary because you're obviously tracking the moment but let's say in recent times or deeper history one of the things that has been a priority for them for us has of course been diversifying the collection so most obviously in terms of representation of women artists which now goes right back to the 17th century and i think is really seriously done throughout the rehang you know as well as a contribution of artists of color 
you know, from the moment of large-scale migration onwards in the moment of independence, decolonization, but of course right up to the present and, you know, reflecting the real vibrancy of the contribution of artists of colour to today's art scene. But also, you know, looking at narratives, you know, in ways we've been discussing that, you know, the collection as was perhaps was not touching on. So I think, you know, the collection, as I understand how it's put together in the 20th century, was very consciously an island nation collection. So, of course, British artists, but art made here about subject matter that is, yeah, island nation subject matter. And it's actually a rarer thing anyway to see depictions of empire, say, but of course such a crucial part of our history. And in, in the case of India in the 18th century, you have, you know, major artists like Zoffany based there and commissioned to make works of, you know, of India, but from a East India Company perspective. So, and just little things, like we have a room called Age of Revolution Reform. It, it, it begins in 1776, the American Revolution, ends with the so-called Reform Act, not so-called, it was called the Reform Act, 1831, which sort of, in a way, significantly, but didn't properly increase parliamentary representation as a reflection of the demographics of where people were. But it was a major shift in Asati. And there's a tiny little recent acquisition by an artist called Pine, not a terribly celebrated artist, but a beautiful little work, smaller even than a postcard, of a riot in Bristol from 1831 that occurred because the local MP did not vote in support of the Reform Act, so not in support of democracy. And in the same room, you get a far better known and rightly celebrated painting by Constable, perhaps our greatest constable, and a relatively recent acquisition, actually, as Salisbury from the Meadows. And it's, it's often seen, it was painted also in 1831, and it's often seen to be the Salisbury Cathedral is, is thought to be standing for unchanging values and therefore, you know, a small-c conservative position with respect to this moment of quite great democratic change. So, you know, those are examples of paintings that begin to do the work of wonderful aesthetically and also super interesting in terms of subject matter that begin to be able to sort of, you know, set out our own past, our present in a more representative way. Alex, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Ben. Thank you. The rehang of Tate Britain is open now. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. The San Francisco-born artist Joan Brown is currently the subject of a touring survey that began at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art last year and arrives this week at the Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh. The show features 44 works made across the artist's 35-year career from early art school paintings in 1950s San Francisco to the works made just before her tragic death in a construction accident in India aged just 52. Among the show's key paintings is a work in the Carnegie's collection, The Room, Part 1, made in 1975. I spoke to Liz Park, who's curating the Pittsburgh iteration of the show, about the picture. Liz, tell me, where was Joan Brown in her career at the time she made this painting? So this painting, titled The Room, Part 1, was made in 1975. This was an interesting moment for Joan, who came of age in San Francisco at the height of counterculture movements. So San Francisco in the late 60s, early 70s was the crucible of hippie culture, and it was also referred to as gay mecca. It was also a place where there were all sorts of influences, spiritual influences, uh, other cultural influences. So this painting is really a distillation of her transitional moment from absorbing all sorts of inspirations previously from Western art history, from her academic training as a painter. But at this point in her life, thinking through all of these cultural spheres around her that's influencing how she's looking at the world and how she's looking at herself. She achieved tremendous success very early on, didn't she, in her 20s. And MoMA bought her work, for instance. Tell us about that, because she made a big shift in her style, even though she was tremendously successful. I think of Joan Brown as somebody who is constantly searching. 
So when she began her art career as a student, influenced by Bay Area figurative painters like Diebenkorn, Elmer Bischoff, she really absorbed the stylistic influences from her peers and her teachers. Her early paintings were thick as icing cake, but she really looked to herself and she had this inner compass where she was driven to experiment and to not only experiment with topics, but also materials. So you gradually see her abandoning the thick impastos and adopting flattened spaces, pictorial spaces that allowed her to achieve different uh, visual vocabulary. And this transition from one style to another, you really see throughout the entire exhibition. And the room part one is really indicative of that shift in style and that sort of reductive style, a more graphic intensity to the way she made her paintings, isn't it? Yes, the room part one is considered sparse for Joan's output, which sometimes has an incredible amount of details and patterns and colors. In this particular painting, we see a vast flat gray space. And on the pictorial space, we see three intersecting lines in the upper left corner, which really indicates her influence from the painter Francis Bacon, who would often use lines to indicate architectural space. And the flattened pictorial space is also a nod to a painter like Matisse, who she admired. A lot of Western art history and painters like Rembrandt and Picasso influenced her early on. But what is really interesting about this painting is the Song Dynasty ink painting that is directly referenced. Yeah, tell us about that painting, because is it right that it shows Kitan tribesmen hunting with eagles? In, is, it, is it sort of from the 9th or 10th century? Is that right? That's correct. This is an incredible painting that really speaks to Joan's interest in expanding beyond Western art history. And I am sure that the idea of hunting with an eagle appealed to Joan tremendously. Joan Brown loved animals in many of her paintings you see an animal of some kind interacting with humans. In some cases, she herself becomes an animal. That's right. She becomes a cat at one point, doesn't she? She loves to become a cat. Her um, Eastern astrology sign is a tiger. So that is a feline uh, that occurs frequently in her painting. Uh So I'm sure seeing an eagle uh, being part of a group of hunters was very appealing to her. Absolutely. Now, she's famous for these very frank, uh, often very funny self-portraits, isn't she? And even though this isn't a direct self-portrait, is it right that that leg hanging over the armchair at the foreground of the image is her? Is that right? Absolutely. The Room Part One features this incredibly patterned chair with a leg slung over the arm and you see a yellow shoe, that's an indication that that's Joan Brown and that this is a self-portrait. So when you see many of her self-portraits, she becomes part of something. She's channeling something. And here you see Joan buried deep in this upholstery. And we are not quite sure what she is doing in there, but we know that there's this relationship between the chair slash Joan and the painting that she's observing. She's introduced the painting into the space of her studio and her living space. So we can see that there is this direct relationship that she is forging. I wonder if it's a sort of longing to a certain degree, almost a, a longing to be in that world, because it's, it's like she's turning away from us and to this landscape that she's depicting in this historic painting, as if she wants to be there. That's a goal of hers to reach that world, if you like. Longing is a great word. I think Joan is somebody who longed for and desired many different worlds, many different ways to see the world. And also, I think of her as somebody who's really invested in looking for her own self in these various spaces that she can conjure. So in terms of these references that really depict other worlds, 
She is indeed picturing herself within it. But I also think she knows that she is not able to be in that space, which is why she doesn't depict herself in the pictorial space of the Song Dynasty painting. She's depicting herself in her own interior, her own space. So I think she understands that there's this place that she inhabits. And from there, she's searching within herself. And her sort of period of travel begins a little after this, doesn't it? In the sense that I know that she had a Guggenheim fellowship, which meant she went to Egypt in 1977, for instance. So she then, from that point, travels a lot. Was she around 75 when she made this painting? Was she well-traveled then? She was always into traveling and dancing and really uh, enjoying what life has to offer. But you're right, the Guggenheim Prize and her ability to travel to Egypt really set her on a search. Egypt was a place that she was infatuated with. The ancient symbols is something that she really wanted to explore. And the light, she talked about the light and how that affects her observations of the world as a painter. And this is really what prompted the later phase of her painting practice, which really distills her exploration of different modes of spirituality. Of course. And it took her in the end to India, which is where she tragically died, of course. Would you tell that story to us? So she and her fourth and last husband, Mike Hebel, were really devoted to Sai Baba. And she went to India to work on a mosaic that is part of his Eternal Heritage Museum. She and uh, another person tragically died when a turret collapsed on them. Yeah, it's it's an awful sudden end to a career which was clearly in the process of forming a new phase, it struck me. She was working on an obelisk, for instance, wasn't she? So that sense that you said of, of longing, of constantly searching, she was continually reinventing herself in a way. It is indeed a career cut short by a sudden tragedy. One of the most remarkable things, however, is how prolific Joan was. And you really get a sense that there was a full production. There was a fullness in how she approached every subject, every painting style. So I feel that we're tremendously lucky to have this incredible volume of work by a painter who was constantly evolving. It would have been incredible to see where else she could have been had she not passed away so suddenly. Indeed. Tell me about her reputation now. And obviously, your show has come from the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, where it's been much acclaimed. But her reputation suffered a little towards the end of her career, even though she has shown since. Tell me where she is in terms of art world reputation today. Joan Brown is a beloved figure in the Bay Area and SFMOMA's organization of the survey and the tour really speaks to the importance of Joan Brown in the Bay Area. It seems to me that there's really an opportunity to reintroduce Joan Brown to the East Coast, to other parts of this country and internationally, because her scope is so wide and her imagery is so accessible and appealing. So one of the goals of this survey and Pittsburgh's presentation is to reintroduce Joan to a larger audience, perhaps even beyond the audiences that she reached during her lifetime. I wonder also if it's a moment where she could be reconsidered in the kind of best environment in a way, because there are people like Alice Neal who the art world struggled to place in a similar way to Joan, and they are similarly thriving today. So I wonder if actually this is the best moment to reevaluate her. I absolutely agree that this is a great moment to evaluate Joan on her own terms. I feel that oftentimes, as you mentioned, Alice Neal or other women painters, for example, often suffer the fate of not being uh, neatly slotted into existing categories or existing narratives. So to reconsider Joan on her own terms today is an incredible project. And there are so many contemporary inquiries that we can pull out of her vast bodies of work. The idea of self-portraiture, for one, is an exciting topic that curator and art historian Helen Molesworth wrote about in the monograph that accompanies the survey. And there are so many other interesting details that we can pull out from all of her paintings. 
Well, Liz, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having us. Joan Brown is at the Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh from the 27th of May until the 24th of September. It travels to the Orange County Museum of Art in Costa Mesa, California from the 7th of February to the 1st of May 2024. And Joan Brown, Facts and Fantasies, is at the Matthew Marks Gallery in New York until the 17th of June. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Julia Mihalska and David Clack. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Sarah, Alex and Liz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.